electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Starts right now, live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Pete Najarian, Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, Goldman Sachs jumping on the Bitcoin bandwagon, going full crypto. The first of the traditional big banks to win to join the craze. And Spencer Bogart of Blockchain Capital, a top crypto hedge fund, says this is just the beginning of Wall Street embracing the crypto universe. He'll be here to tell us what it all means. Plus, Tesla CEO Elon Musk going nuts on the company's earnings call last night, and shareholders are paying the price. Jim Cramer will tell us the one thing Elon Musk must do to win back Wall Street. But first, we start off with stocks staging a major comeback at the lows of the day. The Dow is down nearly 400 points, but then reversed midday, ending just slightly higher as investors seem to shrug off worries over the Fed and China. But tomorrow brings the real test, and it could be a jobs doomsday. Both the strong or weak jobs report could cause pain on Wall Street. Fast Money fans will recall that back in February, strong wage growth in that jobs report is really what sparked all the selling we've seen so far this year. So is the market in a no-win situation? And when do you know if it's safe to buy stocks again? Guy. Lots unravel there, Mel, but let me put it this way. I think the market is in a potential win situation, and it's predicated on what happened today. You know, Steve Grosso a couple weeks said, 2580 is your line in the sand in the S&P. Look how many times we've tested it and defended it, and it defended it in a major way today. That's a very good sign. So to answer your question, if you don't see wage growth tomorrow in any meaningful way, I would not fade the rally you will see. Tomorrow's one of those days where no wage growth, decent jobs number, the market will rally. Don't fade it because I think it will close on the highs for the day. Can I ask a question? Why should the market actually find tomorrow as being the day when we keep making lower lows? And in fact, the fact that we test and don't fail at the 200, although we close below it, to me isn't really encouraging. The fact that we keep testing it is the problem. And I looked back to not only February 9th, but then we had a couple fake rallies, and then ultimately those were places to sell into. So I, I I don't think the Fed is, is, is helping things. I don't think the market has anything so to do with it. I'm somewhere in, in uh, between the two of these guys, literally and figuratively. I do think that the test, the re- re- repetition of tests, mm-hmm. is unhealthy for the market if you're a bull. But every time we test one of these lows, I get a phone call, followed by 10 or 15 other phone calls. Was that it? Was that it? Was that the test? So there is a group of bulls that want to jump back in, that want to feel as if this was the real test. So tomorrow, ahead of the weekend, go to time as any. On what Resolution. number? On what kind of number, Resol- though? I don't think it matters. It to, doesn't to matter? Point, You're telling me if, they, if there is no, strong you know wage matters, growth tomorrow, our, won't the markets freak out because they're worried that wages, December's in play? Hourly uh, wages is the key to this metrics that we're looking at tomorrow. And Tim, I talked about it yesterday, symmetrical, used by the Fed. Rick's, uh, Rick talked about it today earlier on from Chicago saying th- there was 10 other times that the Fed used that in the language. Now, if we get that pendulum, I think that they're there whether they need the gas or the brake. You know, it seems to me that we're just stuck in this range and for some reason or another we just expect to see something different and we just keep seeing the same program again. 
15 to 18 on the volatility index. You see that 2580 number up to a little over 2700 in terms of the S&P. We seem to test both levels and we don't seem to be able to bust out to the upside at all. But the downside holds just as strong. So is tomorrow's wage number, is that important? I think it's important for tomorrow. But going forward, I think the more, more important thing is the uncertainty of what's going on with China is as big as any story out there right now. I think that's where the confusion is in the market, because if you look at the earnings growth that we, we got this last quarter, it's absolutely incredible. The guidance was also incredible. I mean, when you're looking at the double-digit strength that we're seeing right now in this market, those are very impressive points. But if something doesn't go right with what happens over in China... All of that is meaningless because all the guidance is but out is the door. It, isn't the right? bark always worse than the bite? And that was my thought coming into this. It has week. been when with the, Trump. The you're US talking about mostly. sends an envoy to China. You think you're sort of sort of out of the woods, or the worst is over. So I think that the U.S. will bark really loud, but when China says no, 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 we'll back up a little bit, and I think the markets will move higher to your point. Well, I, I think that I think we have parked really loud, and I think if anything, you know, Xi Jinping has, has given the markets a chance to actually to catch their breath. They haven't pushed back at all, as far as I, I think. I think Mnuchin's going to go over there, and I don't think he's going to cut a big deal, and I think people are very worried about trade. I think the ISM number, I think a lot of the leading indicators, you look at the Fed surveys, uh, you look even various components of, of, of some of those Fed numbers from yesterday, you're you're getting corporate CEOs that are concerned about tariffs. You're getting feedback loop. You're getting folks within the, uh, the labor community who think there's not enough skilled workers out there. So, you know, my whole view is this is about a multiple you're willing to pay for stocks. When that tax, that, that tax cut, folks, that's a one-off boost to earnings. No. That doesn't keep, doesn't keep happening. You go from a corporate tax rate. In terms of, of the S&P? Of, of 35% to 21%. You have not begun. Does it, first of all, you have historic earnings by any measure you want to slap on it, historic earnings, but we still don't know where but, companies but, are going to put this money, and if it's, if it's company buybacks, so be it. But a 21% corporate tax rate going back to 1941? First of all, everybody the didn't get treated the same. Tax rate was 1941. How could you say it's all over? Everybody doesn't get treated the same way. Bottom line here is on a year-over-year -year basis, you wash through most of this tax cut. That, that is my view. Companies aren't, we're not going to see 20% earnings growth in the S&P next year. And, and in fact, we started out this year at 23% S&P with a trailing 20 times multiple. Uh, I think we're probably closer to 19 I times now and the multiple 16 and a half current. And I think that's where we should I be. I see where you guys are going. I mean, there's, there are huge question marks when it comes to the market, when it comes to the lasting, how, how lasting is that tax cut? How much is that going to give us in the future? There are questions about growth. So if we get a weaker jobs number, that's going to throw that into question. If we get a stronger jobs number, we're going to get uh, right. the question of whether the Fed is going to lean harder into a December hike. Uh, and then we have the uncertainty of China, right. which is, but I mean, if we don't get a deal out of China, those tariffs can go into effect on June 1st. And that's a problem. A month away. And, and that and could be a huge problem. question on the And then we finally see right. a spike in volatility from where we've been in this range. I think that there's no doubt in my mind that the volatility, finally we get back into the 20s and maybe quite a bit higher than that. So is the risk to the, up, is the, risk to the downside at this point, given the market action, given the trading range that we have been in, given the volatility we've seen? You tested the downside a number of times and you held. So my point at the top of the show was, and I hear what Pete's saying about China. Remember, this all started in late January or February with a hot wage number right. that put the Fed in place. So China came at least four or five weeks after the fact. And four I or five other reasons for the market to sell off, to by the way, point. of which we've had four or five since then. But what changes each, overnight? Nothing. I don't, nothing changed. I'll tell you what could change tomorrow. And I can't tell you what's going to happen next week, but if you get a wage growth number that's not near what the market's looking for with a decent jobs number, I think the market will take that as an all clear, and I think there's a room to rally on the upside given the test we made in the S&P today. Totally yeah. agree. Totally agree. agree, yeah.
Tim? Well, I, I think I, I don't see anything that's going to change the market's anxiety over what multiple should we be paying with a Fed that basically upgraded the economy. Remember, on March 21st, the Fed came in. It sounded like a pretty middle-of-the-road, slightly hawkish statement, but the markets relaxed. We rallied for an hour, then we closed hard, and we closed down 5.5% over two and a half sessions. Uh, we're right, I think, somewhere um, at least in the same digestion period. I'm not saying markets have to do that. First of all, they're now significantly lower than they were then, although we never traded back above it. So sentiment-wise, why does this have to get good tomorrow? Quick. If, if that number is sort of middle of the road, to Tim's point, we had six or seven or ten different reasons why the market should have sold off. It didn't. I think tomorrow is any good, any good day as any other day to rally from here. All right. On a wild day like today, there is no better voice than our next guest. He has been called the man who moves markets. Also, he's been called half God, half man. Mm. We simply call him Marco Kalanovic, the head, global head of derivatives and quantitative strategy at J.P. Morgan. Welcome back, Marco. And what name do you prefer? Uh, just Marco. <laughs> <laughs> That's what his friends call him. Half um, man, half God. Marco um, has brought his crystal ball, so we want to get right to some of your predictions and your, some of your big calls here. Prediction number one, the market bottom is in. Why is that, Marco? <laughs> okay, so... So first, a little bit about about the markets. You know, it's 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 a sort of business of uh, probabilities. You know, like so, I wouldn't I wouldn't call this uh, kind of 100% uh, type uh, type statements. We do think that uh, more likely than not, actually quite likely, the bottom was on February 9th intraday. If you remember, it was 2532 intraday. You know, so uh, and day before close, I think 2581. So so we think that low 2500s was probably bottom. Uh, we, we think there's a strong chance. Reason, look, in February we had a very quick deleveraging. Uh, we had all of these fears kind of uh, uh, basically um, escalating um, around rates, you know, around volatility and correlation, spiking, de-risking, very rapid de-risking, um, took uh, sort of investors by surprise. So, so we, we thought that's likely that that was the bottom. Since then, obviously, other risks emerged around the trade politics, geopolitics. Uh, we are digesting those risks, you know, and a number of them, I think we are working through them. Uh, tomorrow we'll see what comes out of China. So, um, so, so we think there's a very good chance that was, uh, that was the bottom. Okay, let's get to prediction number two. All this market volatility will end. Explain, Marco. <laughs> so it's, it's not going to end, but we think it's going to subside. You know, we think it's going to get better. So in December, uh, I came with the forecast the VIX is going to average 15 this year. And remember back then it was around 10. So a lot of people are kind of questioning that. Um, since then, we saw kind of a period of 20. Um, and I think we will see periods of 13, 14 later in the year. So to kind of average out to, to around 15, you know. So we are today at 16, 17. So we think there's a room for two, three more points of volatility uh, to decline. Again, sort of what were the risks? Uh, uh, what were the sort of reasons why we forecasted higher volatility? Well, number one was the rates and the Fed, you know, which I think played out. You know, we, we, we shot to 3% Fed height. I think, uh, I, I think these fears are subsiding. You know, I, I see the symmetric statement actually as, as quite dovish, meaning that we can, uh, we back can overshoot. Off, we can overshoot, we can tolerate. And keep in mind, for 10 years, we had a PC below 2%. So does symmetric means 10 years? Probably not, but can it mean a few quarters? I think yes. You know, so, so I think that risk is a bit subsiding. The second risk we highlighted was basically extreme low levels of VIX driven by correlation and selling of options. You know? and, and that risk is now lower. Correlations shot up drastically. Retail investor investors were wiped out on the short VIX type trade, so that you know, so that positioning normalized. You know, so 
third risk we mentioned was high equity position of, of investors, both right. systematic and discretionary. You know, so on the systematic side, we see very low um, equity loadings of, of these trend followers, sure. quant type of accounts. On the discretionary, there's a bit of debate, you know, but we think, uh, you know, we look at the equity beta of these hedge funds and we see 38, 40 percentile, so below average. You know, so, so we think positioning, uh, positioning decline. And then finally, valuations. We said valuations, low vol sector, growth sector, you know, uh, multiple was very high. We look at the forward multiple, which is now in low 16s. Yeah. Historical average was 16.9. You know, so right. we are below historical average. You know, so we think actually that's almost definition not expensive. Okay. You know, so so we think that corrected. So we think risks are subsiding. All right, let's gaze into the crystal ball one more time for prediction number three. 3,000. That is where you say the S&P 500 is heading in the next seven months. So it is a house view. It's a J.P. Morgan official house view price target of 3,000. It's a round number. We came with it in December. Um, even in December, I said, like, look, we don't have conviction in specific one number. It's very hard when you have, like, volatility of 15 or 20. It's very hard to pinpoint a number. You know, and a lot of things happened since then. You know, we still maintain that target, and we still have a pretty high conviction that we will reclaim the highs, you know, which were kind of call it 20, high 28, 2900. You know, so, so I think we'll reclaim the highs. I think we'll go a bit above. You know, whether it's 29, 29, 50, 3,000, or maybe even higher, I don't have a, that strong conviction. But we think basically economy is strong globally, you know, so, so we don't buy into this slowdown. You know, if you look at the April PMIs, secondary authors, we think economy is very strong globally, fairly uniform. And earnings, we think that basically it's, it's, it's very, very strong. Like different metrics will look like either highest in 10 years or right. some metrics, you know, highest, highest ever, you know, so, so we think that that should drive us higher. All right, Marco, thank you. Right. Good thank to see you, Marco Kalanovic. Half man, half God, hmm. Which as he's half? known in some quarters. <laughs> yeah. We'll leave that for another day. Or another um, show. But I mean, yeah. the takeaways from these predictions is essentially that the, the worst may be behind us for 2018, the worst in terms of volatility, the worst in terms of the lows of the market. So how does that square up with your view, Tim? Well, so first of all, Marco and his team have done a great amount of work, not only in, in sorting through a lot of quantitative data, but also understanding market psychology. And, and I think, you know, for me, um, my sense a few months ago was that I thought markets were too complacent. I think we are still getting to a place where uh, people are still uh, somewhat complacent. I, I actually think that if you look at financials and if you look at um, sectors that I think will be most positioned to this global growth, this is not a bad place to be buying stocks. Earnings are fine. I think point two is about volatility, right? Yeah. That's something that I focus on all the time, bring it up all the time, and I think a lot of people misinterpret really what volatility truly means. So let's just put it simply. 16 means a 1% move on the S&P daily. So Marco's saying around 15. I totally agree with him. I think we'll see spikes into the 20s. Shoot, we could even get into the 30s. But that's not going to last long. And I think so many people want to say, well, volatility is here to stay and it's going to be here and holy smokes, get ready for it. If, if you double that and go to 32, that's a 2% move every single day. I just don't see that happening, Mel. So for that reason, I see volatility, as he did, somewhere in that 15 range with some spikes here and there, but they don't last long. And then the market kind of finds itself again and finds itself back towards 15, 16. It's interesting. He flagged the dates that we talked about, you know, that early February date down to 2535, the fact that we've bounced off 2580. Who might argue with J.P. Morgan? I don't know if 3000 is in play, but I'll say again, you know, we've defended enough times on the downside to make me think we have one shot at least to go to the upside, and maybe it's tomorrow. All right, coming up, Tesla hits the skids, the stock cratering after a wild performance from Elon Musk on the conference call last night. How can Elon win back Wall Street? Jim Cramer will be here to weigh in. 
The crypto craze is captivating Wall Street as Goldman Sachs dives in head first. A top crypto investor will tell us just how big of a Bitcoin boom it could lead to. And later, Guy Dami here is stepping up to the plate for the fast pitch, and he says there is one beaten down hospital stock that's about to break out. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on CBS. Let's get to Julia Borston for the details. Julia. Melissa, CBS CEO Les Moonves, very bullish about the company's advertising going into the important upfront ad sales period. He even took a little bit of a dig at Facebook and YouTube in the wake of their data and brand safety scandals. Take a listen. In addition, we're confident that the unparalleled reach and trusted brands of CBS will prove to be an especially attractive landing spot for marketers this year as they continue to assess some very well-publicized concerns about digital advertising. Moonves says his own digital businesses are strong, saying that CBS's direct-to-consumer apps are growing and that they're also growing revenue from CBS's inclusion in new digital skinny bundles. Melissa, back over to you. All right. Thank you very much, Julie Borson. Interesting, because when the Facebook scandal first broke out, we thought immediately of whether or not Google would benefit or some of the other social media platforms did not necessarily extrapolate to the networks. Do you think that what he says is true? So I do, I, I'm a firm believer that Facebook is going to, is the you know, 500, 800, pound gorilla in the room, them and Google. So I, I don't think people are going to really leave in any mass amount of numbers. But incrementally, sure. CBS down 17% year to date. If they're going to, if they spread that around and, and even incrementally they leave, I think that CBS could be a beneficiary. And I guess there's a question still of whether or not advertisers are in fact leaving Facebook or will in fact leave Facebook. We didn't know. We didn't find out this quarter. We yeah. will find out. I'll tell you this, though. In terms of valuation, you look at CBS at eight times forward earnings, growing at probably 13 and 14% off of this quarter where you saw cable did well and their entertainment business did really well. Mm -hmm. You have to ask yourself, why does it trade at such a discount to a Disney? Now, I'm not saying that Disney should be significantly lower, but in my opinion, CBS should be at least a handle higher. You start doing the math, you're talking about a stock that should be at least 13 to 15% higher than it currently is, in my opinion. All right, let's move on to Bitcoin now. Goldman Sachs is going all in on the crypto craze, moving forward with plans to set up a Bitcoin trading operation, the first of any Wall Street bank. Bob Pisani is breaking down how this could rock the crypto world. Hi, Bob. Yeah, this is important. Uh, the New York Times reporting that Goldman will use its own money to trade Bitcoin futures and a new type of Bitcoin futures called a non-deliverable forward. This is essentially an over-the-counter futures contract. Now, what's interesting here is that Goldman seems to believe that Bitcoin isn't really a medium of exchange, not a currency, but it does have characteristics of a store of value like gold. Now, that makes a lot of sense to me since, to me, investors seem to be doing exactly that, investing in Bitcoin as a store of value rather than a medium of exchange. Now, why the decision to get into Bitcoin? What happened to Goldman is what happened to a lot of firms. Investor interest was off the charts, and they decided to try and to find a way to address that interest. Now, this is important for exactly the reasons future trading was important for Bitcoin back in December. It adds to the respectability of Bitcoin. Goldman is the first bank to have a Bitcoin trading operation. Now, this is another baby step in the institutionalization of Bitcoin. Volumes in the futures contracts, by the way, have been improving recently. Goldman tends to be a leader in the market overall in all things. They're just more opportunistic than everybody else. And there's a good chance this is not going to be the last institutional player in this space. By the way, Goldman has already been clearing Bitcoin futures for its clients. What they're not doing yet 
is trading Bitcoin directly. That is awaiting regulatory approval. Trading Bitcoin directly, of course, is a bit of an issue. Like the obvious one is custodial issues. How do they secure the coins? But this is a very good first step. Back to you, Melissa. All right, Bob, thank you. Bob Pisani from the New York Stock Exchange. For more on what this means for the crypto universe, we've got blockchain capital partner Spencer Bogart, who joins us today from San Francisco. Hi, Spencer. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, had the barrier for institutional investment in, in Bitcoin or Bitcoin futures, I guess, in this example, been the lack of a trading desk at the big banks? It seems that there are other issues wrapped in. And I ask you this because this is being touted as a big step. Is it really? Absolutely. It's definitely a big step. I mean, I don't think it's a, a, a perfect solution that all of a sudden now just opens the floodgates to the institutionalization of Bitcoin. But I think as Bob pointed out in the segment, I mean, listen, first we had the futures contracts roll out. So some robust derivative products. Now we're seeing large banks roll out trading desks. I mean, particularly when it's Goldman Sachs, I'm going to expect other banks will follow as well. And they're going to follow not just because it's Goldman Sachs and that's what a lot of banks do is follow what Goldman does. But because this market is so large that you can't ignore it anymore. I mean, if I'm sure that most of these banks have heard about the numbers or have seen the numbers that companies like Coinbase and Binance are putting up. And there's a real risk that some of those companies could overtake some of Wall Street's biggest banks if they don't get in the market. But in terms of institutional investment, I mean, OK, let's say this is a good first step. What's the next big problem that needs to be solved? Sure. So, I mean, I think that, that Bob hinted at it in the segment, which is custody. Right. So, I mean, right now we have Goldman rolling out uh, a trading desk that will only be touching derivative products. But longer term, I can imagine that they're going to be embracing trading of the underlying product, right, the physical Bitcoin. And so, you know, I think a a big piece of solving that puzzle is going to be custody. And who is who's working on that problem right now? There's so many companies in the space. Like, really, I think that this became a a very well-known problem over the course of 2017. And now there's probably a dozen credible players in the space that are going after it, including companies like Coinbase and BitGo. So in terms of your forecast for where Bitcoin could go now, Spencer, if things were to remain the same in terms of who is able to invest in Bitcoin, let's say institutions are, are where they are right now for 2018, where does Bitcoin go? And then if the custody problem is solved, then where do you think Bitcoin goes? Sure. So listen, at Blockchain Capital, we're a venture firm. So we're thinking about longer term horizons. So if you ask me what's going to happen to the price of Bitcoin over any one, three or five year span here, what I'm thinking about is one thing. Is there going to be more buyers than sellers? And I think the answer is yes. And we can really easily think about this problem if we think there's two main groups. On one hand, we have hodlers, people who own some Bitcoin. On the other hand, we have people who don't yet own any Bitcoin. And the question is, is the flow going to be greater from hodlers to non-hodlers or from non-hodlers to hodlers. And my guess is that there's going to be way more people that will be newly buying Bitcoin for the first time. And they're going to be doing that through apps like Robinhood that have rolled out uh, crypto trading, through apps like Square, and Mm -hmm. through some of the biggest platforms like, like Coinbase. All right, Spencer, thanks for your analysis. We appreciate it. Good to see you. Spencer Bogart from Blockchain Capital. Hodler, by the way, hold on for dear life. The people who are just going to hold Bitcoin through thick and Guys, thin. Guys, you're a hodler, right? I, I was I trying mean, to, if he said I mean, hodlers or not, I'm sitting there shaking my head. I'm looking around. What is he talking about? But it's this total, total thing. Total, Because total somebody words. put the, the D in front of the L and it became something. And it makes it Whatever cool. it but is. Those are the people who hold on to it. They don't sell life. it. They don't trade it. But that, that's what's, I think, interesting about this. Look, I, I, I am a believer in, in blockchain. I'm a believer in crypto. Um, I'm not necessarily sold that Bitcoin is the vehicle. And, and calling it a store of value, um, I, I just, at this point, I'm not sure you can make that call. It's not a store of value. It's a store of speculation. And that's fine, by the way. Um, what, what I also don't understand, and I actually 
actually, you know, Spencer or guys that are uh, rolling up their sleeves every day looking at the nuances of the different tokens themselves. I mean, is Bitcoin really going to be the horse that rides to rides? But to this is a and, huge tailish wind for for Bitcoin with yeah. Goldman. This is yes. I think that once you start to yeah. get Wall Street and the name like Goldman Sachs behind Bitcoin, the average investor starts to think, OK, maybe I'll take a look at it. So I think the wider berth on Wall Street is going to be tremendous, tremendously bullish for Bitcoin. Well, as Spencer mentions, he talks about demand, and, and that's what exactly why Goldman wanted to get in there. And I think so many other banks are going to want to well, follow that's probably along. why Jamie Dimon backed away from his initial right, Bitcoin exactly comments, right. because and, they're looking at the same being, thing. And, and they're not positioning com- it. All they're doing is transacting well, for clients, right? Which is fine. Jamie, they're not, you know. When Jamie Dimon not, brought that up, was he defending himself at the time? Probably so, more so than putting this down. He's trying to defend his turf. Now, I think with Goldman coming in there, I think you're going to see the rest of the banks want to get in this space. That is a monstrous growth potential, and they see that demand coming. By the way, the move from Bitcoin from 100, 200 crisscross, I mean, it has held 9,200 back up to 96. Technically, it's behaving as it's supposed to. Actually, I think better than the the market. Still ahead, the Dow is in correction territory, down 10% from its 52-week highs, and so are a whopping 21 of the 30 stocks in the index. The top technician has three names. He says you should buy right now. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, First in Business Worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. Guy Adami says there's a beaten healthcare name that's setting up for a big move higher. He will deliver his fast pitch. Plus, the Elon Musk meltdown continues. We're going to go to YouTube. Sorry. These, these questions are... So dry. Now, Jim Cramer says Musk needs to do one thing to regain shareholder trust. And he'll tell us what that is when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. The Dow staging a major comeback today, closing in the green after falling nearly 400 points at the lows of the session. It has been a rough year so far for the Dow. It's 21 of the 30 Dow stocks have fallen as much as 10 percent or more since the Dow hit a high on January 26. Now, check out the biggest losers since then. Industrial giant 3M has lost nearly a quarter of its value. Retailer Walmart has lost around a fifth of its market cap. Same with Procter & Gamble. And chemicals maker Dow DuPont, not far behind. McDonald's, the latest addition to the group, as of today, down 10% from the high. So are any of these names a bargain buy? Pete? I don't know if it's reached bargain yet because of the value where it's coming from, but this 24% move to the downside by 3M I think is interesting. And of those names, the other names don't excite me a lot, quite frankly. I think there are names that are down a little bit less than McDonald's? I I thought you would say McDonald's. (laughs) McDonald's, I I do like that one. But you know what? McDonald's, (laughs) it continues to get a little bit in front of itself. Then it makes these pullbacks and gets in front of itself. I, I love what they're doing. I think they are doing everything that they should be doing. But at valuation of where they are for a fast food restaurant, I just don't know that I can grab McDonald's. And for 3M, you like I, I, I like a lot about what 3M actually is, is able to do, but I, I think they were like so many of the different industrial names out there right. that we've seen that have got way in front of themselves, like Cat when it was $173 a share. 3M was one of those names. I still think it has a further drop before you'd want to jump. I mean, when you look at the chart at 3M, it's, it's hard to think that there's still more downside. I'm not saying that right. there, that but there, there could, isn't. Right. But, but I would say that they should do what McDonald's did when they got rid of all the SKUs. 
How many SKUs does 3M have? 50,000? Items. items. Yeah. yeah. How many items does it have? So when you look at the stock chart, it does look like it is in a bottoming process. I'd be willing to give it the benefit of the doubt. All right. Well, our next guest says there are three Dow stocks that are worth buying right now. Let's go off the charts with Todd Gordon of TradingAnalysis.com. Hi, Todd. Hey, Melissa. Uh, let's first, before we get into those three stocks, if it's okay, take a look at the Dow. Today was a crazy, for me, trading market. If we just look at what has brought us to today uh, through all of 2018, uh, we technicians would look at this as just a simple triangle. And basically what's happening, you're getting a series of lower highs all the way down, and we're getting higher lows. At some point, all this potential energy that's been stored up in this market is going to be released and go into kinetic energy, if I remember my <laughs> physics correctly. Whoa. So today was very interesting. We came down. Oops, can we go back? Didn't mean to advance that. I want to check that 200-day moving average. We tried a third time to break through. We snapped back. I think that's the buy signal. I actually went and did start to nibble on the long side here. So you can see that 200-day. We've tried once, twice, three, almost four times. And you got a really cool little candle here. I think that's going to be the reversal signal for the Dow. So to take a look at the three stocks that we have here, number one is Caterpillar. A lot of news, obviously, with the downgrade. I think the relative performance of Cat was very, it was very strong here today. You're going to notice that this guy is testing that 200-day moving average. Not that same sideways, higher lows, lower highs pattern as the Dow. You've got more of a, a downtrending <laughs> pattern here in Caterpillar. I think that is what they call a bull, a bull flag, sort of a, a move up and out of that range would be constructive in Caterpillar. But of the three that I've brought here, this is the relative uh, laggard, I should say. Next in line is going to be Home Depot. And again, you're going to see just a really nice response from that 200-day moving average. And again, I've never seen a market that has respected the 200-day MA so much. It seems to define everything in this market. So just a nice, beautiful move up. We've come down, sort of a little rounded cup here. We're, we're set to move up in HD. I like the looks here. And then the next one, I think that the best of the Dow right now is Boeing. Again, just look at the distance here. Look at the air between the 200-day moving average. We have a nice just sideways consolidation, not even um, any movement here, just a real clear break up through about 370 bucks is going to get you done in Boeing. I think that guy's showing the most relative strength. What's the worst-looking stock on the Dow? Was that the worst stock in the yeah. Dow? I mean, you guys are talking probably 3M, right? I mean, I think I think. Oh, so some... Pete's buy is the worst-looking stock. <laughs> well, <laughs> from a technical point of view versus a fundamental point of view, I mean, do you like it technically? Pete? Yeah. Do you like, do you like in his defense, I'm not sure you said you b yeah. would be a buyer. <laughs> right, right, right. I didn't necessarily say that. Okay. But of those names that we were looking at on yeah, that yeah. list, I think 3M is probably the closest. And it's made this adjustment of 24%. But I if you and Todd want to take it outside after the show, we can maybe go outside <laughs> with this. <laughs> hey, I'll pick you, yeah, I One thing I was going to ask you, how about we're talking about XLI? Do you still have your XLI puts from uh, from our conversation yesterday? Yeah, that was that was just from the other day and even more paper yesterday. And, yes, I saw the industrials. in two, But last night we also had Christopher Onan who actually yes. discussed – Hey, maybe 1% or 2%, maybe 3% at max for the industrials to the downside still. He might be right, but those puts could still come into play pretty nicely. And I'm going to push my luck while I have it here and uh, can I go back to the last conversation. I do think you guys are drawing correlation between Bitcoin and the Dow. Is the overall market stabilizing? To go back to your last conversation, does Bitcoin start to find a bid from risk-on spirits? So just throwing that out there. Great kinetic energy, Todd. Don't change the Good momentum, whatever it is. Todd, thanks. thanks Todd guys. Gordon, tradinganalysis.com. Guy, what do you think of, uh, I don't know, 3M? Well, I think the Todd measure Hicks. of kinetic energy, of course, is jewels, as you know. J-O-U-L-E-S. Yes, not the kinds you wear on your finger, number one. I will say this in terms of his chart. <laughs> Thank it, you. It mirrors a lot of the conversation we had at the top of the show. So, you know, we've tested those levels a number of times. 
stands to reason that we might bounce off it in a significant way. Not to suggest that the move isn't over, but for the next couple of days on a tepid wage number tomorrow, I think we can explode off that 200-day moving average. Boeing, Depot, or CAT? Definitely. Well, first of all, CAT's got terrible kinetic energy because, again, kinetic energy is energy that's in motion already, <laughs> and that's, that's going, going down. down. Um, Home Depot, to me, fundamentally, you know, I'm going to leave the chartists aside. The, the fundamentals there make a ton of sense to me. There's a major tailwind in the consumer. Uh, I don't think that the interest rate sensitivity should be pushing around Home Depot, yet it seems to. Stay in this name. All right. Uh, we got a news alert out of Washington, D.C. Let's get to, get to Eamon Jabbers at the White House with all the details. Eamon. Yeah, hi, Melissa. We have a correction to bring you on a story from NBC News that we brought you earlier in the day today. Uh, here it is. Earlier today, NBC News reported that there was a wiretap on the phones of Michael Cohen, President Trump's longtime personal attorney, citing two separate sources with knowledge of the legal proceedings involving Cohen. But three senior U.S. officials now dispute that, saying the monitoring of Cohen's phones was limited to a log of calls known as a pen register, not a wiretap where investigators can actually listen to calls. NBC News will continue to report out the story. So, Melissa, that's the update uh, from here at the White House. Back to you. All right. Thank you, Eamon. Eamon Javers at the White House. So, uh, Grosso, we did see the markets move a little bit on this earlier today. Add this to the list of all those unknowns in the marketplace right. and those tape bombs that you see every once in a while. Just be prepared for it. This is a product of volatility. These uh, one-liners, these headlines, they're not going away, unfortunately. Just invest through them. All right, still ahead, Tesla tanking today after CEO Elon Musk went on a wild rant on the company's earnings call last night. So what does Musk need to do to woo back investors? Jim Cramer will be here to weigh in. Plus, it is the one beaten stock that Guy Dami says could make a major turnaround. Find out what it is when he delivers his fast pitch. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Tesla CEO Elon Musk raising quite a few <clears throat> eyebrows on Wall Street with his wacky behavior on last night's earnings call. Let's get to Phil LeBeau in Chicago for the details. Hi, Phil. Melissa, about this time yesterday, I was talking with uh, one of your producers, and they said, how's the conference call going? I go, eh, it's kind of off to a sleepy start. Boy, did that change about halfway into the call. That's when there was this exchange when Bernstein's Tony Sakanagi tried to ask a question regarding uh, the profit margins and the expectations for the Model 3. Listen to this exchange between Sakanagi and Elon Musk. And so where specifically will you be in terms of uh, capital requirement? Next. Next. Boring bonehead questions are not cool. Next. And that was just the beginning. Then Musk cut off a follow-up question when he said, look, these, boring, these questions are boring and dry. Let's go on to YouTube questions from a Tesla investor uh, who basically asked about a half hour of softball questions. So what you have was a big drop in Tesla's shares. Remember, all of these questions, for the most part, surrounded the Model 3, whether it's profit margins or the configuration of the car. The company did say it's on target to build about 5,000 per week within a couple of months. So not exactly by the end of the second quarter. That's not the uh, guarantee from the company. Here's what analysts said today in terms of whether or not this is a big deal the way Elon Musk handled this call. I think it was, it was a little mean, but whatever. Uh, we'll get past it. And again, people are going to focus on how many Model 3s they can make. And at the end of the day, that's all that matters. I think the stock would be up today if it wasn't for what happened, but uh, this will pass. And my feeling is in the next couple of days, we'll look back and you know this will be all but forgotten. If he can't be bothered with running the minutiae of the company, then he should change roles and should bring somebody else in as a, as a you know, operational manager that's going to interface with the street and be able to talk to those details. 
Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. Elon Musk is firmly in control of this company. Melissa, one last note. I did reach out to some folks at Tesla. I heard back late this afternoon. They're not expecting Elon Musk to say anything more <laughs> regarding this conference call. <laughs> yeah, not a surprise. <laughs> Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau in Chicago. So is this Elon Musk just being Elon Musk? Do we look through this, Grasso? Is this forgivable from an investor? Totally standpoint? forgivable. I really? bought the stock. I don't want to answer your stock. questions about capital expenditures. I don't want to answer your questions about profitability. So, and that's excusable. So for me, yes, it's excusable. And people that are long the stock, like a CEO, being very candid like that and shooting down any analyst that's poking holes in the story. I bought the stock a couple days ago. I bought the stock again yesterday. I bought the stock again today. Wow. It held. It sold off on a CEO being rude. That does not sound like a fundamental reason to how about being transparent? How about a CEO that won't answer that are very real questions hell, on growth? Really if that question. was Jamie Dimon it doing it, would it be okay? Yeah. It you is. think it's no, it 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 Come on. Jamie Diamond has Jamie Diamond's been cocky. Are you kidding me? Why he doesn't show? say no, I'm not going to answer that question. Margin about, for a company that right. no one knows what the labor intensity of the question. model 3 is. You just saw him report. Hey. He beat guidance on everything. Keep Stop. Enough. Give him a wider berth. Keep buying it. Keep shortening it. Hey, we've got a Kramer alert here. The one and only Jim Cramer here to weigh in on Elon Booyah! Musk's antics last night. So, Jim, what does Elon need to do to win back Wall Street? Nothing. I mean, the whole thing's been a charade. At least he finally called it one. I mean, this has been a parlor game. He's been playing with analysts and finally just had enough. Uh, look, I, I think that it was a really good call because he said two things, which is I'm tired of playing the shorts game and the hedge fund game. And the other thing he says, don't buy my stock. And that was just really fabulous. You shouldn't buy a stock. I think no one should buy a stock because it's not for the faint of heart. And if you really want to own it, all you're doing is playing the game. I mean, it's kind of like it's kind of like Scott Wapner's book. I mean, it really doesn't have anything to do with the stock right now. It has to do with a guy who's got one set of facts and then a lot of other the people have another set. So good. Stop having conference calls. You sh he should just stop it. He should have the car guys come and interview him at the Gigafactory and it just be one giant love fest. And if you love it, then fine. It is not for me. But I think for once he spoke the truth. JC, real quick, Elon Musk speaks as though he's got some ace in the hole. Do you think, is there a potential investor out there that might throw him, it's a $50 billion company, give or take, might throw him a billion, $2 billion are, to are invest you, in are Tesla? Are you thinking SoftBank? I'm thinking, I'm thinking a Saudi Arabian a fund out there or, you know, even a Mr. Buffett, although that's not typically his thing. But the story is so compelling. Is there somebody out there that could do this well, and put I all did, this to rest? I, I think that someone could cure the financials. Yes. I mean, there's just a lot of money that needs to be raised. And one of the reasons why I, I felt bad for these analysts is because, look, they're trying to get at the, the obvious thing, which is you, know, you should be raising money because you're burning a lot of cash. And that's just true. But you know what? He doesn't play by the rules. And maybe there is someone behind him who just says, you know what? Just go do whatever you want. But for the little guy who is watching, this thing's far too dangerous. And it was great that he said that there's too much risk. I thought that was incredibly honest and good. Good. He said it. Look, it's just too volatile for you. Please sell. And I just love that candor. That was terrific. And yes, Tony Saganay, I mean, every time he's on a call, he says, you know, he's worse than the guy, the consumer package, good guy from Morgan Stanley. And there's Steve Tusa over J.P. Morgan. These guys just get on the calls, and they're just trying to bring the house down. Like Tony, Apple's best days are behind them, Saganegi. And why are all the analysts immune from criticism? Why can't we ever just say, you know what, that guy is endlessly negative, and I had it. I thought Musk was good on that. And, Jim, I hear you got a big show tonight. You're rocking the boat with the CEO of Norwegian Cruise Lines. Let's take a listen to this first. Uh, one of the things that millennials favor most and seek is value. Right. They're not 
millionaires they're yet. They're frugal. They're, they're getting there. Right. And along the way, they still want to have fun. Millennials have the highest index of propensity to travel, more than Generation X or the boomers. Um, they're great customers. Yeah. Is the stock a millennial play? A yeah, cruise line? Really? <laughs> Ten times earnings ahead of a, a gigantic meeting tomorrow where they really have a very good story. The whole cruise ship business has been, uh, the stocks have all been going down. But it is a, uh, the millennials love the price shop. They know that it's a bargain and they take it. Uh, just ask my 23-year-old daughter who goes on these cruises. She, it's just not the way it used to be 20 years ago. She is the best barometer. In, in, terms, nice. uh, in terms of millennial taste, she's got excellent taste. Yes, mm -hmm. thank you. Uh, um, in terms of uh, what appeals to millennials, you got a little taste of that today, right? I well, hear that you're driving around in, in, in what, in what a, a little car? Yeah, it <laughs> drove like a Tesla, frankly. <laughs> it, it was, there you go. It's kind of, you know, herky-jerky at the beginning. Then it just really flies. Uh, but you know what? Unlike, it, unlike the stock of Tesla, it's safe at any speed. <laughs> Nicely put, Jim. Thanks. Thank good to see you. Thank you. Good to see you, Melissa. Thank you, guys. And, of course, do not miss the rest of that interview with the CEO of Norwegian tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern time on Mad Money. Still ahead, from burgers and shakes to watch your weight, we've got two big after-hours gainers, Shake Shack and Weight Watchers. This conference call is underway. We will bring you the latest headlines. Plus, Guy is stepping up to the plate, warming up to pitch one stock he says could make a major turnaround. He'll give us the name when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Time for the fast pitch. One of our traders will pitch a stock they think could rally. When he is done, the other traders will vote on whether they are buying or selling the stock. And today, Guy is over at the plasma with the one name that is down more than 10% from its recent high. What are you looking at, Guy? Hospitals, Mel, hospitals. And I got to tell you, I have Tony Braxton playing in my head. I can tell already that I'm going to lose. But you know what? I got three reasons why you want to own this stock. The stock is HCA. Attractive valuation. Tenant Healthcare just reported a ridiculous quarter. That stock's going from 21 to 35 in a heartbeat. But you know what? It's trading close to 20 times forward earnings. HCA, better story, in my opinion, trades at half the valuation. So if you like THC, you got to love HCA. Walmart concerns. Yeah, Walmart's getting in the business. But you know what, Mel? When I had my kidney stone, I wasn't driving to Walmart to get it taken care of. I was going to a hospital. <laughs> People still go to hospitals. Just look at HCA's last quarter, and you can see admissions were much better than people expected. And the last one, they have a huge competitive advantage in urban areas, some place that Walmart really can't penetrate, some place that HCA dominates. Last quarter was outstanding. I think the stock sold off because guidance was tepid at best. I think people are misinterpreting what went on, and I think HCA is a screaming buy. I also say this. I think somebody spoke about HCA at the Sone conference a week and a half ago. I agree. Well, I'm surprised we didn't get the baby crying when he talked about his kidney stone. And Tony Braxton would have issue with their geographic concentration and pricing pressure and margin pressure, Guy. What, you know, what do we do there? No, you know what, Tim, you're right. There are margin pressures, but they're also running the hospitals better. Look at the last quarter, and margins actually improved. So maybe they figured out their business running more efficiently. So what you, your concerns are overblown because I think they're running their businesses better. And the margins from last quarter, in my opinion, prove that. No more questions. Time to vote. Are you guys buying Guy's pitch for HCA? Pete. Great management, great company, great valuation. Guy, we're with you, baby. Wow. Tim, you sounded skeptical. You know what? He gets me on valuation, and, but I'd rather have Tony show up tonight. Miss Braxton, please. Grasso. Make it a triple. Oh. I think, I think you can follow. 
Oh, and that draft of tennis. You know what that means. Tony Braxton tonight. It's not Braxton. <laughs> but we will see you guys out there. We'll vote in our poll and determine what we will listen to at the end of the show. Uh, there you have it, the poll Ooh. at Ooh. our Twitter not page. We'll good. reveal the results later on. Much more fast. Still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Time for a little earnings whip. And in a strange case of fate, both Weight Watchers and Shake Shack reporting after the bell today. Both stocks seeing some pretty healthy gains in the after-hour session. And Eric Chemi is pulling double duty, covering both names back at headquarters. So um, <laughs> pick which wow. one you want to start off with, Eric. That's right. Uh, healthy gains indeed. We'll start with Weight Watchers. The stock up 9% right away. CEO Mindy Grossman gushing about celebrity partners Oprah Winfrey and DJ Khaled about how they're helping get their all-time record number of subscribers. Take a listen to this sound. In the U.S., our ad campaign featuring Oprah Winfrey highlighted the freedom and simplicity of WW Freestyle. Starting in January, WW Ambassador DJ Khaled engaged with and entertained millions on social media, and the enthusiastic, positive response by his followers has been remarkable. College Kitchen, an immersive food truck experience, gave people a taste of WW Freestyle and showed how healthy can fit in into any lifestyle anywhere. And then turning to Shake Shack, better than expected same-store sales up instead of an an analysts expecting it to be down, and they're up about 9% after hours as well. So healthy gains indeed for both. Back to you, Melissa. All right, thank mm. you very much, Eric Chemi. Uh, Tim, which one do you like? Shake Shack. I mean, I was not a fan for a long time. Uh, you know, Randy Grude has been on the show uh, at least once. And, and what he's talked about is the unit sales growth, which these guys are executing on. It's not just these high concentration areas. They're actually growing in other spots. Good for them. Weight Watchers? Uh, I think you should let your body get to the size it wants to be. I think you should naturally. just give it up naturally. <laughs> just go. I mean, what size would that be for I, I, you, right, right here. I mean, it's, it doesn't work. It's a great. losing. It's a you know, losing. Great call. It's a losing event. Every it sucks people dry. You get in there, college. I'm sure you're doing great. Just buy the burger. <laughs> just have it, dude. Let it get to the big man. body weight you want to be. Up next, final trade. Guy said he was hearing Tony Braxton in his head earlier. Well, now he's going to hear it for real. That's right, a big loss. About 58% of our Twitter fans say they are not buying the pitch Crushed, really. for Crushed, yeah. I mean, Final trade, Pete. PayPal, this thing's going higher. Giddy up. Tim. Home Depot, that's weakness I buy. Steve. Tesla, buy. Key. HCA, Tony. All right, Mad Money with Jim Cramer is up next. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.